I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. I'm Jack Caprol, filling in for Andrew Schwartz. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll dive into the latest news on Hong Kong, including how U.S. businesses feel there about the new Chinese national security law and potential U.S. reaction. Plus, we'll react to the latest news that the U.S. may ban Chinese airlines later this month. And we'll break down the Trump administration's new sweeping investigation into digital tax proposals. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. This week, I'll be filling in for Andrew Schwartz. This is Jack Haperl, and we're here with another episode of The Trade Guys from our respective homes. And I want to start this week picking up on where we left off last week, which is the issue of Hong Kong. The American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong, which essentially represents American companies in Hong Kong and their business interests, they did a temperature taking is what they call it of their members this week as you know they kind of digest the ongoing uncertainty in Hong Kong surrounding the new national security law and the Trump administration reviewing Hong Kong's autonomy and its uh, special status under US trade law and economic relations and there are some interesting results that I want to throw at you guys from the Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong survey 53% of members said they were concerned about the law, and 30% of members said they were moderately concerned. So that's about 80% of members uh, voiced some level of concern about China's new national security law. 60% said they expect the law to harm their business operations in Hong Kong. 70%, however, said they had no plans to relocate any operations, capital, or assets. 74% they were in a wait-and-see stance following Trump's announcement to begin revoking Hong Kong's special status. But at the same time, only 15% of members are optimistic about Hong Kong's medium to long-term outlook. So I see this as a mixed message at best, but I'm interested in what you guys think. Well, look, first of all, Hong Kong starts from a very high base performance. It is an unusually dynamic, free place to do business. It has prospered because of that over the years. It's uh, consistently been rated as one of the freest economic spaces in the world. It also benefits from deep capital markets, plenty of liquidity, and an honest civil service. So it, it has always had those elements of, of sort of uh, sort of British rules and Asian energy that have made it really dynamic place to do business. So any change from that very high bar is going to show up in surveys like this. So that that's the first point I've made. Second, most of the businesses that are there, the American businesses, so members of the of the AmCham, as it were to be, are there for the long haul. They're there mainly to do business with the mainland. And so while it's concerning to them, they're finding ways to watch and wait it out. But the concern is no surprise to me, given how great a place it was before all this started to happen. My initial reaction, Jack, when you read the numbers was, this is, this is where Scott may have a different view was this this classic business community. They're unhappy, they're nervous, and they're not going to do anything. Uh, you know, 74% said they're in a wait-and-see mode. 70% said they have no plans to relocate. I mean, the sand is leaking out of the bag on this. It, you know, the Chinese are making clear. This is the culmination of a number of small steps over the past few years in which Hong Kong autonomy has been 
fairly steadily impinged upon by various Chinese forces, you know, kidnapping of people and taking them to China and then incarcerating them there for various offenses that were not really offenses in Hong Kong. And, and now this law, which is the most overt thing they've done. I mean, you can see the handwriting on the wall here. And I think everybody's in a wait and see mode. And that may be the right thing to do. But, you know, I, I think the trend is clear and I don't think it's going to change. It's going to get worse. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion here about what is the United States going to do? What could the United States do? And uh, The president's announcement last week, I thought, was notable for what it didn't say, more than what it did say. It, it didn't unravel phase one, and it didn't immediately implement all the things that he could have implemented. He ordered the government to start doing that. And as everybody knows, I think, the statement by Secretary Pompeo that we no longer judge Hong Kong to be autonomous by itself doesn't have any action force behind it. If the United States is going to do something, it has to be done by uh, basically other agencies through other steps. So he wanted to restrict export controls. We wanted to impose uh, the tariffs that imposed on China. We want to get rid of their visa-free status. Those are all separate actions that have to be taken and haven't been taken yet. And we'll see how fast the U.S. moves on that. So, you know, the immediate impact is, is small. But the larger symbolic impact, basically telling Hong Kong, the Chinese government telling Hong Kong, this is no longer a safe space for Westerners. This is no longer going to be a place where you can count on non-interference by the Chinese authorities and where you can count on rule of law. And that's got to give uh, Western companies there, even if it's just you know, a headquarters or a sales operation, that's got to give them pause. And if the Chinese think that they're everybody's going to move to Shanghai, which I think some of them believe, they're just flat out wrong about that. You know, people are going to move, but they're going to, they're going to go to Singapore, they're going to go to Tokyo, and they may go to Taiwan. I mean, there's winners in this, but Hong Kong is not one of them. Well, yeah, I'm a slightly less cynical than Bill is about the large percentage who are going to stay, uh, because if you're serving the Chinese market, where are you going to go exactly? So uh, you're probably better off in Hong Kong, at least for the near term. Bill's absolutely right about sand leaking out of the bag. Hong Kong was always a place where you were safe and your money was safe. And it's pretty clear you're not safe anymore, which probably means it won't be long until your money's not safe. That's going to be a problem. Okay. And by the way, Singapore has long been sort of coming out the winner decision by decision among American firms. It, it is now, it appears to be the preferred location for an Asia Pacific headquarters operation uh, for a lot of reasons. So that I think that Singapore is likely to be continue to win at this. But in terms of serving the Chinese market, it doesn't surprise me that companies are concerned, but they're going to stay for the moment. We had a phone conversation the other day about this with Dr. Hamry, and he had this Colin Powell quote that I thought was interesting, which was something along the lines of, capital is a coward, meaning that money is not going to take a stand on principle. Nope. It pursues return and avoids risk. It's yes. nearly magic in that way. So let me ask you know two questions that are based on the conversation that we've been having. You know, if you're a U.S. business or a foreign business in Hong Kong, what is the value of Hong Kong as it currently exists in terms of your ability to operate and serve Asia as a market, right? Why would you choose to locate in Hong Kong versus Beijing or even Singapore for that matter? And and what's at risk of happening? And then, you know, the second question that I want you guys to tackle is, why is the United States punishing businesses in Hong Kong for actions that China has taken. And I guess another way that I think about this is, you know, are there actions that the United States could be taking 
that would punish China for undermining its international commitments to treat Hong Kong as autonomous, the one country, two systems commitments. Are there actions that the U.S. could take that are directed at China that wouldn't also basically catch Hong Kong in the crossfire? Well, I think the answer to the first question is pretty straightforward. As companies are there because of talent, because of connectivity, the connections to the rest of Asia, it's a very efficient and well-connected business location. And the depth of the capital markets for financial companies who are there, they may all have partners there as well. But don't underestimate the role of talent in this. I mean, the, the people in Hong Kong are really good at what they do, uh, and it is still is a very energetic and efficient business location. In terms of your second question, uh, Bill will have more ideas on this, but it's very hard to take actions that affect mainland China and don't affect Hong Kong in this particular circumstance. You'd have to tailor the measures very carefully. Yeah, on that, I mean, I think we did what we did because it's the normal reaction. You know, they've done something to Hong Kong. So we have existing authority deal with the question of Hong Kong autonomy and sort of lost in the debate was the question of who are we actually hurting uh, with these actions. And the answer is uh, we're hurting people in Hong Kong who are already the victims of what the Chinese are doing. So we're making uh, effectively making the bad situation worse. But sometimes that's what you do with sanctions, because there's always these people that say, we have to do something. When I was at the National Foreign Trade Council, we used to lobby on this. We ran USA Engage, which was a, an organization that opposed unilateral sanctions. And we frequently found ourselves going into either the executive branch or the Congress saying, you know, don't do that. It won't work. And it'll hurt the wrong people. And the answer was, but we have to do something. You know, we have to show that we're unhappy. And we don't want to send in the Marines. <laughs> well, our response was, yeah, but you don't have to do something stupid. But that <laughs> argument rarely prevailed. In this case, what they can do, I think, it would not hold Hong Kong harmless, but there is uh, sanctions authority. And this, this is a proposal that came out of the Congress, which would be to sanction one way or the other. First, anybody that was individuals who were involved in implementing the new law once it goes into effect which would mean officials in the Hong Kong government as well as various Chinese officials. But also going after Chinese banks would probably be the most effective way to send a signal to Beijing about this. That would not be impact-free in Hong Kong as well, but it would certainly have its primary impact on Chinese banks. Staying in the neighborhood, the administration today announced that it was planning to block Chinese airlines flying into or out of the United States starting later this month because the Chinese government has essentially prevented U.S. airlines from resuming services between the countries. So, you know, by way of background here, I think in January, before there were all the travel bans put into place, U.S. airlines operated something like over 300 flights a week into and out of China. And as a result of the travel ban, you know, those numbers plummeted, Right. But there's concern now that the Chinese government is not allowing service of U.S. airlines to resume, which effectively bans U.S. airlines from servicing China. Meanwhile, Chinese airlines have been continued to be able to fly in American cities. You know, the U.S. claims this violates a 1980 agreement that ensures rules, quote, equally apply to all domestic and foreign carriers, which is pretty straightforward language to me. So what are the economic and trade implications of this decision? How does this escalation compare to, you know, previous actions that we've seen taken like tariffs and export controls? And, you know, what are the implications for U.S. businesses that operate in China and, and kind of, you know, have flights back and forth built into their procedure? Well, I think 
I'm frustrated by this. I have a feeling this is one of these things that is so stupid that it's going to go away, that this is some decision that the Chinese aviation authorities took probably on their own early on and didn't think it through. And the Trump administration typically, rather than trying to uh, negotiate a resolution of this, simply said, well, we'll just do the same thing to you. You know, and the result of that is, if, if nobody fixes this, is there aren't going to be any flights back and forth, which is just ridiculous between the two biggest economies in the world, which is why it's, I mean, it, the thing is so absurd that I think eventually, um, I hope fairly quickly, authorities will come to their senses and work this out in some way that allows flights in both directions from both sets of airlines to, to resume. So I'm not really worried that this will be a long-term problem. I think it'll just be one of these things that is going to get worked out fairly quickly. If not, it'll be significant. I mean, if you can't go there, I mean, nobody's going there now anyway because of the pandemic. But as we've talked about before, I think one of the permanent or at least long-term consequences of of COVID-19 is going to be a significant drop in business travel because people will discover that, you know, Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever, you know, maybe it's only 80% as good as in-person, but you know, 80% is a lot better than 12 hours on a plane with a mask and all the potential health consequences. So, you know, you're not going to have 300 flights a week anymore, I don't think. But you're going to have to have some, you know, you've got diplomats, you've got business people, you've got, you know, the people who live there who <laughs> want to go back and forth to see their, their families. And if there are no direct flights, all that means is they got to fly to, you know, Tokyo or, or Singapore or someplace on a Chinese airline and then change airlines and then fly another one from Tokyo back here. It's just absurd. Yeah, look, it's an inconvenience and it is, it's an irritant. Uh, and of course, neither side seemed to show much interest in sort of leaning forward and getting things back to normal. So, but that's not surprising. I guess the only point I'd make is this is why we advocate rules-based trade. Okay. There's no trade agreement here. Okay. Even though it does amount to services trade. Uh, between the two. Airline services are one of the largest components of services trade. But there's uh, there's no rule here that, that it is enforceable, at least. And so we're, we're left to uh, an old treaty that's hard to enforce and, and a move very quickly to reciprocity. So this is kind of why all the effort toward rules-based systems, despite their pounding in the conventional wisdom, they're actually quite valuable over time. The last question that I want to ask you guys on the airline question you know, there was a growing air cargo relationship, the use of like civil aircraft to, you know, put more cargo on it uh, because less people were flying. And that was a way for airlines to make money as a result of the pandemic with less people flying. I mean, do you think this is going to have a short term impact on U.S. and Chinese airlines that were relying on the, the new cargo business to make up for the loss of passengers? And if so, what would the consequences of that be? Well, look, this has just been one big adjustment because once passenger travel collapsed and they cut the number of flights, I, I think we've talked about this before. Basically, look at the plane. The top half has people in it. The bottom half has cargo. And so because there was less cargo capacity because of passenger flights being canceled, cargo rates went way, way up, almost doubled, I believe. Now, that's a market signal. That's a demand signal that uh, airlines are trying to address. But I think uh, there's a tremendous amount of improvisation and sort of rapid response going on within this industry at the moment. They're trying to keep people employed, trying to keep planes flying. 
Uh, planes actually work better when you fly them all the time instead of parking them for weeks. So there's lots of, lots of incentives to keep the vehicles themselves moving, uh, the aircraft moving. But look, it's uh, demand once it cratered is coming back in somewhat slowly and in different ways than expected. So everybody's, I think everybody's improvising. All right. Let's go from the physical to the digital. The administration this week announced another Section 301 investigation into digital services taxes that are being considered by a list of countries, a bunch of them, Austria, Brazil, the Czech Republic, the EU as a whole, India, Indonesia, Italy, Spain, Turkey, and the UK, uh, the latter of which we're negotiating a free trade agreement with. And the investigation is supposed to determine whether or not the digital taxes under consideration by those governments discriminate against American technology companies, Apple, Google, Amazon, etc. So, you know, this isn't a new issue for the administration. They did a Section 301 investigation into French digital services tax, and they determined that it was discriminatory and that they did have authority to put tariffs on French imports, but they didn't end up doing so because there are global negotiations for a solution to this issue ongoing at the OECD. So, you know, my questions for you guys on this are, you know, one, why is the administration initiating a huge investigation now, right? Why didn't they just do this before? And, you know, how will this affect the global negotiations that, that are ongoing to try and reach a deal around digital taxes? Well, I think it's a classic move of this administration, sort of a hit it in the face kind of thing, leverage. I mean, I have some sympathy from a timing point of view. At one point, it's, it's premature because none of them have actually done anything, you know, and, and, and normally under trade rules, you want to show harm uh, before you take some retaliatory action. There hasn't been any harm because none of them have passed the law and, you know, nobody's paid the tax. On the other hand, one of the complaints that I think a lot of businesses have legitimately about, you know, the trade dispute resolution process is that it takes too long and it's slow and so and you've incurred substantial harm before anything happens. So I have some sympathy for you know going after people early in the process rather than waiting for the harm to be done. But it is, does look a little funny. How do you calculate damage when in fact nobody's actually passed anything? I think the logic is simple. He's trying to squeeze the OECD to hurry up and squeeze all these countries to agree with whatever they come up with. I'm not sure it'll have that effect. It might have the opposite effect. I think Bill's got it right. Is this is this looks to me like a tactic to provide additional leverage in the ongoing negotiations. I mean that that's the one characteristic of the president and his administration is they're always looking for leverage somewhere. I think they think this provides some. I also have some sympathy with uh, trying to establish the harm beforehand because you let it go on too long and all of a sudden you don't have an investigation. You have a coroner's inquest and uh, you've got industries in deep trouble. So. My only comment to finalize this is that this issue is not going away. Governments are in the red massively because of the public health crisis and the effects on their economy. They're going to be looking for revenue everywhere. So the ghost of Russell Long will be walking the halls of every trade ministry and every uh, tax authority in the Western world. Don't tax me. Don't task the task fellow behind a tree. I, That's it. Russell Long was one of my heroes. I was working for a member of the finance committee when he was chairman, I could tell you stories. He was one of the sharpest people you'd ever meet in terms of knowing how to run a committee and get the result. I mean, he was 
among other things, living testimony of the fact that, I mean, people don't seem to think about this. It, you know, politics is a profession, like everything else, you know, and it's, it's not something that anybody could just do. It's an art form in a way. And he was one of the best at it. Of course, he was there for a very long time. Anyway, I think it's a leverage issue. I think Scott is exactly right on the revenue side. I mean, if anybody's listening to this and you're in the ICT sector, you know, you're going to be toast on this. I think the taxes on digital services are inevitable. The governments need the revenue, and it's an area that is simply undertaxed relative to other areas. And as the sector grows, as, you know, as, as, as retail collapses and, and online merchandising grows, the opportunity for revenue here is going to grow exorbitantly, and the governments need it. Um, the best anybody can get out of this, and I, I think the companies that recognize this, is a system that's, that's equitable across countries, where everybody's adopting the same definitions, the same rules, and the same procedures, so that there are not incentives to uh, move to someplace or incentives to move away from someplace just because of their tax structure. And once again, the trade guys look on the sunny side of life and predict higher taxes. <laughs> As a longtime Democrat, I've been accused of being for higher taxes for 40 years um, <laughs> with some accuracy. You know, we, we believe that, that, you know, if you want services, you got to pay for them. There, I'm, Scott would agree with this. There's no free lunch. That is, that is a fact. I don't know if everybody sees the sunny side of higher taxes, but I'm happy to leave it on at least the arguably positive note for this week. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. Thank you, trade guys. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.